And please pray with me. Lord, you're gracious. Uh, it occurred to me this morning how gracious you are to take us through a season of Advent in which uh, there seems to be a convergence with the times in which we live. That Jesus, you came as light into the darkness. And Lord, we're contending with darkness in these days. There are troubles within and without. And so, Jesus, I pray that even as you have come, and even as you were received, that you would come this morning to us, that you would be received by us in a fresh way, in a new way, in a way in which you would work into us hope, in which we would apprehend the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your salvation, the greatness of your person, the greatness of your word, the greatness of the Holy Spirit, all the things that are packed into these few verses, Lord, would you bring them to bear here this morning? And we thank you that we can ask you to do that and be assured that you certainly will because of your love for us and because of your promises to us, that you will certainly give the Holy Spirit to those who, who ask, that you will certainly cause your word to be effectual in the hearts of your people. So, Lord, would you do it all for the glory of your name, for the good of your people, and even for the good of this city? We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, yesterday, uh, we set a kind of a record in my family. We bought our tree and set it up, um, you know, uh, as early as we ever have. We are one of these families who slacks and doesn't get it until we get into the December 20-something. But we got our tree yesterday, and it's, you know, it's just an exciting time with kids and family. But it occurred to me that this may be one of those rare years in which we are more excited for New Year's than we are for Christmas because of... 2020. We're all eager to put 2020 in the rearview mirror. Apparently, one of the hot Christmas items this year is a Christmas ornament that is a dumpster that has a little LED illuminated fire coming out of it uh, with 2020 inscribed on the front of it. But as rough you know, as this year has been, uh, it's, it's not been without its bright spots. Uh, for us and our family, one of the bright spots came uh, early in the year, on January 5th, when uh, we uh, welcomed a baby niece into our family, our little niece, Georgia. And, you know, as much as I love the Christmas cards that are starting to roll in, I thought about the birth announcement. I love Christmas cards, but there's nothing quite like a birth announcement, is there? With all the essential information of this new person who's coming to the world, the picture, the full name in print for the first time, the birth date... You know, all the stats, the, the weight and the length, and, and um, is girth one of them? I think girth might be in there too, I don't know. But that's a delightful thing to receive. And, and I thought about that this morning as we looked at this text here the second Sunday of Advent, because the text that we're looking at is essentially a birth announcement. It's a birth announcement with all the essential information about Jesus. And that's really what we're looking at this morning, what this birth announcement tells us about Jesus. And in particular, three things I hope that we uh, are able to delve into and walk out of here with a better knowledge of. First, that he is fully God. Second, that he is fully human. And thirdly, that he is fully ours. Now, the first thing to notice about this birth announcement is unlike all other birth announcements in which the birth of the baby results in the birth announcement, here, the birth announcement results in a baby. <laughs> 
It's kind of a backwards birth announcement in that way. The announcement of the baby precedes the arrival of the baby. And in fact, the, the birth announcement of Jesus precedes this moment by millennia. And the announcement, of course, isn't hand-delivered. It's heralded. It's heralded by angels. Now, we could uh, pull anyone off the street. You could go down uh, to the uh, treacherous parking lot at Trader Joe's and grab anyone trying to make their way into the store and, and ask them what they know about the Christmas story. And you would almost certainly hear something about angels. Uh, you might hear something about the angels making an announcement to the shepherds or to Mary, but, but I doubt if very many people would talk about what we're looking at here, that, that an angel appeared to Joseph as well in a dream. But even before the angel shows up, I want to pay attention also to another actor in this story, apart from whom there would be no story, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is mentioned twice in this text, both times highlighting the fact that the Spirit is the source of life growing inside of Mary. And one of the great misunderstandings when it comes to the Holy Spirit is, that, is this idea that He's some sort of ethereal, ephemeral being who sort of flits about and floats above the reality of earthly human life. There's a whole spirituality predicated on kind of getting out of regular life so that you might get into an extraordinary uh, experience, so that you might get the spirit. But, but I want to notice how utterly different this is here in the scriptures and looking at the activity of the Holy Spirit. It just doesn't get much more fleshly than what the Spirit is up to in bringing about the incarnation. In fact, the word incarnation itself is the most fleshly word there is. It literally means to put meat on. Uh, you might have chili, but if you have chili con carne, incarnated chili, you've got chili with meat, right? So just as in the work of creation where the Spirit brought life where there was no life, He's doing the same thing here. So the, the Spirit's prominent in this story, but long precedes the story. One of the great Advent hymns we were talking about in our staff meeting the other day is a hymn written by Charles Wesley called, Come Thou Long-Expected Jesus. And I love that title because it, it so well captures what we're learning of here that, that Jesus is long expected, that the announcement of the angel is really the culmination of lots of announcements. God didn't throw Jesus into the world like a Hail Mary, you know, or Salvation Plan 2.0 because the Old Testament Salvation Plan 1.0 didn't work out. That's not, that's not what's going on. In fact, Jesus arrives as one long expected, perfectly fulfilling God's redemptive promises to his people in the flesh. And to really see that, it's important to pay attention to not only what God is doing, but actually how he's doing it. As we recited a few minutes ago, as core to our faith, Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born to the Virgin Mary. There's deep, scriptural, redemptive, covenantal echoes in these events. I mean, consider for, for a minute the long arc of this story, how God sustained the covenant of redemption, the promise of salvation through Throughout the ages, through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. How did he do that? He did that by the Spirit, carrying that promise forward in this very particular way by causing babies.
to be conceived in the bodies of brokenhearted, barren women. Each of those men's wives, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, were all brokenhearted. They were all barren. And yet, God the Spirit caused each of them to conceive, to bear children, and to carry the promise forward. And, and when it looked like all was lost, when it looked like there was no way, and that story results in Jesus. And the question is, why did God do it that way? Well, I think we begin to come to some understanding of why God caused his redemptive promise to persist through brokenness and barrenness to show us simply this, that salvation is of the Lord. It's of the Lord. It comes at His initiative. It comes by His grace. It comes through faith, out of the abundance of His life, into our lifelessness, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that plot line really reaches a pinnacle here, which Matthew summarizes from, again, one of the deep echoes taken from Isaiah 7, where the prophet said, Behold, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, it's helpful when you hear that name to remember that the person writing this gospel, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was Jewish. Um, and it's vital to remember that this drama breaks forth among the Jewish people. And perhaps the most particular thing about those particular people was their understanding of God. And while they certainly understood God to be personal, that He is their God and they are His people, their understanding of God was utterly transcendent. You know, you just go and just spend a little time studying the encounters between God and His people in the Scriptures, and you will read story after story in which Anyone who found themselves in the presence of God or even the presence of someone who had been in the presence of God, you will read the story of someone who is terror-stricken, who is convinced that their death is imminent. Matthew was part of that people who knew, if they knew nothing else, that it is a fearsome thing to find yourself in the presence of the living God. And it's good to be reminded of that fact periodically if we're to understand the greatness of what's going on here. I mean, I thought about this the other day. We, were, we, we had a meeting in which we were planning, you know, uh, the upcoming ministry year. We're going over a preaching schedule and talking about some of the special services and activities we're doing now around Christmas and even out to Easter and all the stuff that goes along with that. We're doing that prayerfully and carefully and seeking the Lord in it. But with nary a thought that all of that activity would be carried out with the blessing of the Lord and in His presence and that He'd be in our midst and at work among us. But for the Jewish people, as they considered their liturgical year, <laughs> that year orbited around a single day in which they contended with the reality that the closest anyone had hope of getting into God's presence was to send a single priest into a single room in the temple, the Holy of Holies, as a representative for all of us. And even then, just to be on the safe side, they tied a rope around his waist and the very plausible possibility that he might not survive the encounter. <laughs> so to even 
for this people to even write or to utter the name of, the, of God was a great, grave, punishable offense. And look, even beyond that, and, and you know, then as now, everyone had some conception of the divine. At that time and, and now, Eastern religions you know, thought uh, of the divine as kind of permeating everything. And, and you know, every now and then, it might even permeate a person so that they become divine themselves. In Western religion at that time, their conception of the divine had to do with, you know, it being located in and among the gods who would, might occasionally come and visit a human being and mingle among us. But the Jewish understanding of the divine, the biblical understanding of the person of God was utterly unique among all the peoples on the planet. And, and, and I just get into that here to just sort of awaken us to what a watershed moment we are looking at here. Because, you know, while, while Jesus might have come from the east and been considered, you know, just one more manifestation of the divine or, or from the west as a visitation from the divine, he instead here was born to a people on the entire planet least susceptible to the belief that a human could at the same time be God. And yet, through his incarnation, his life, his work, his resurrection, he came to convince those closest to him who were from this people that he was not merely a manifestation or a visitation, not merely a great teacher or a compelling prophet or a powerful healer, but the very same transcendent holy God of the Bible with us. And that was not merely the opinion of people around Jesus, it was the assertion of Jesus himself. Every time Jesus forgave sin, he was taking the divine prerogative understood to be God's alone, which is why those religious leaders around him said, who is this who's speaking blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus says things, I'm, things like, I'm coming back to judge the earth, or before Abraham was, I am, He's claiming not only that he was alive before the birth of Abraham, but he goes so far as to take God's divine name as his own. Over and over again, in all kinds of ways, he demonstrates that indeed he was fully God, God with us. And that all is carried out in the particular place and among the particular people who would have been most skeptical that anyone could be fully God and fully human. And yet, during his life and after he was ascended, thousands not only believed and worshipped him as God, but they were imprisoned and persecuted and endured loss of power and credibility and reputation and vocation and family, and even their lives in that conviction. Because they saw what the Gospel of John says they saw, that God had become flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again, I just, I just want to hear that, hopefully with some fresh ears, in the name Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus was born fully God and at the same time critically fully human. He is also God with us. With us in the most, in, in the most fulsome sense of that idea. God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ by becoming one of us. And he shows his greatness with, 
no less majesty than in doing that. It does not diminish his greatness. His greatness is as much at the beginning of Jesus' life as it is at its end. And it's worth contemplating, I think, for a second, that God didn't have to do this this way. He, he could have come into the world with all power and no vulnerability, or all vulnerability and no power. He could have come as full-grown, redeeming his people, and then leaving. Or, as a baby, he would grow to be inspirational and then die a very human death with the hopes that the dream would live on. But he, but he came in this way, with, with both a plan for redemption of his people and with a plan for relationship with his people. So Jesus, very God of very God, the same yesterday, today, and forever, undiminished in his person and his power, takes on flesh for our redemption with all the vulnerability necessary for relationship. With vulnerable people like you and me, that we might approach him and receive him and adore him. I mean, when you think about it, depth of relationship can only increase with mutual vulnerability, right? That's how relationships work, especially our, most, our, our deepest ones. There's a correspondence there. So you have to wonder, you know, what Abraham or Moses or Job or Jacob or all of Israel would say when they learn that that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit and he will save his people from their sins and they'll call him Emmanuel, God with us. I mean, think about Moses who so badly desired to see God's face but couldn't. You can imagine him saying, I long so badly to see his face, but I had to protect myself from his presence. I had to hide from his glory. But now he's become God with us. I can meet and know him without being terrified or undone or threatened. Do you have any idea what a gift that is, what that means, how that has to reorder your whole life? You can imagine all of these who came before being elated and amazed that instead of coming to his people as he did as a storm or a smoking hot furnace or something like a bomb about to go off, he instead comes as a baby. Is there anything more vulnerable than a baby? They have to be held and cradled and kissed and adored and clung to, even as they cling to you. There's, there's nothing like holding a baby, is there? I just love the way they smell. You know, and the, and the, way, the way they fit in your arms. And, and you know, I, I'm always amazed by how with a baby, you know, it's like anything can be going on, but you can stare at a baby for hours and not get bored. That's how God chose to come to us. In that way, not in clouds of thick darkness with fire going out before him with terrifying judgment, but as a baby to vulnerable, to be held, to be received, to be adored. And none of that diminishes his greatness and his glory. On the, on the contrary, I would say it displays his greatness more gloriously as a manifestation of power and majesty that comes not by way of raw exertion, but by willingly laying it aside, gladly giving up the divine prerogative for us, for our good, for our lives. And here's the thing, the fact of Jesus' incarnation comes freighted with powerful implications for you and me, powerful. The, the incarnation means that it's not, 
enough to just know about Jesus or to just agree to some truths about him because he came not merely with the goal of redemption, but with the goal of relationship. And that means that he came to do more than convey truths about himself, but, to, but instead to commune with his people, that they might commune with him. And there, there's another, I think, important implication of Jesus' incarnation, and that is that it's impossible to receive Jesus, to cling to Jesus, to adore Jesus, without relinquishing what we are clinging to right now for our life. You can't receive anything without letting something else go. I mean, look at Mary and Joseph in this story. They received Jesus, but not without relinquishing a lot. For starters, we find out they're engaged to be married. Now, engagement in this culture was its own sort of covenantal bond. It, it came with ironclad biblical and cultural mandate, one of which is mentioned here, to refrain from sexual contact until after the marriage. So when Mary ends up pregnant with Jesus during the engagement period, it was massively disruptive, massively scandalous. Even if Joseph had pulled off to his plan to quietly divorce her, which was about the best you could do to somehow contain the shame and, and even take some of it on himself, no one, not Mary, not Joseph, and not Jesus, was coming out of this event unscathed. In that community, Mary's pregnancy could mean only one of two things, that Joseph and Mary had broken the biblical and cultural mandate and had premarital relations, or that she was unfaithful to him. And that meant a certainty of social exclusion, of shame, of rejection, not just in this moment, but really for their life. Uh, the good news of receiving Jesus meant the ruin of an otherwise good reputation. And it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take much imagination, does it, to think of Joseph's friends, you know, saying to him, you know, either you two have been messing around or this woman you're marrying is not who you thought she was. And then you can imagine Joseph responding by saying, no, you guys don't understand. God sent an angel to me in a dream and she's pregnant by the Holy Spirit. They would have laughed, they would have rolled their eyes, they would have thought he was gullible or crazy. And in fact, we, we know this scandal dogged Jesus his entire life. There, there was a, a place in John 8, 30 plus years after the story we're looking at this morning where a group of religious leaders and he were going back and forth and they threw the shame back in his face and telling him at one point, at least we weren't born out of sexual immorality. Everybody knew it. Not only, the coming, not only did the coming of Jesus cost them their reputation, but it came with relinquishing, ruling their own lives. If you're married, you might remember what it was like to be engaged. It's an exciting time. It's a time when you're planning what it will look like to build a life together. And they were in the earliest stages of that until the Holy Spirit came with Jesus and turned it completely upside down. You can imagine the plans and the hopes and the dreams that evaporated the instant they heard the news of Jesus. I mean, you know, you look at the story, the angel even denies Joseph his paternal right to name the child. Receiving Jesus means you can't rule your own life. It, it means that this child, again, born a king, in fact, will rule your life. 
you, you simply can't receive Jesus as he is, as he's revealed here, as king, as God, while at the same time saying, well, I've got a few conditions. To receive Jesus simply means you're no longer in charge of your own life. And that spells trouble. That spells trouble, you know, certainly in this culture. It spells trouble in our culture too, doesn't it? A culture that prizes self, control, the exertion of personal rights without ever considering that I might give them up, personal freedom without ever considering that maybe I need to be a servant of others. So it's scandalous to receive Jesus as king because that's tantamount to saying, I'm not the king. I can't rule my own life. So it's a certainty to receive Jesus in a culture that, like that then and a culture like ours now that, that there are times and occasions where it will be seen as not only ridiculous for your life, but rebellious. To follow Jesus is to commit yourself to endless and ongoing acts of cultural rebellion, which will cause misunderstanding, which will invite mockery. People will think you're a traitor. People will think you're crazy, simple, gullible, foolish, because receiving Jesus as Lord and as King requires letting go of the self-ruled life and giving it to Him. To worship him as God and receive him as king requires not only relinquishing reputation and rule, but also our sense of righteousness, our self-made righteousness. The angel tells us who Jesus is, but also why he came. He says he came to save his people from what? Their sins. Now, we're not getting our arms around this concept if we understand sins as confined to kind of this arena of our behavior. You know, and, and in particular, limited to that kind of behavior that's in the, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll column. Certainly, wanton sin will keep you from the Savior, but so will self-righteousness. Our own sense of we're doing pretty well. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good. People like that might admit they need advice or a boost or tips but they'll never admit that they need a savior. Flannery O'Connor wrote a book called Wise Blood, and one of her characters in it says this, there was already a deep, black, wordless conviction in him that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. So it's a good thing when the holy, eternal, and unchangeable God shows up and its immediate effect is always this realization that I'm a huge sinner. As Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. That sense that we're all moral disasters. That we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves, And we see that sin is not neatly confined to this one column compromised of rule breaking, but it extends into another column in which I've convinced myself that I kept all the rules. And what do I need of a savior? You see, to receive Jesus as he is, as God, as king, as savior of sin, sinners, means we must repent not only of the worst of who we imagine ourselves to be, but also the best of whom we've imagined ourselves to be. 
repenting of all the ways that we've lied to ourselves, that we're basically good, upright people who need life coaching more than lordship, advice more than the atonement of our sins. What will keep us from admitting that we're actually guilty before the Lord and in need of a Savior is our own sense of righteousness. But to receive Him as Savior is to admit the truth that we're more deserving of condemnation than congratulations and desperately in need of His pardon if we're to live and have our life in Him. And and look, I understand that all sounds intense. It, It actually is intense, but in a good way. I understand it might seem like receiving Him is too much, that it would require too much sacrifice on my part, that that the cost would be too great for us to pay and relinquishing things like reputation and rule and righteousness. So I, I want you to hear this. The good news is that the sacrifice isn't ours to make and the cost is not ours to pay. It's good to remember this time of year what all the kids already know. Are there any kids left in here right now? Okay, if there are, I just want to ask the kids, what's the best thing about Christmas? Presents. Gifts. And and look, I know we all lament the materialism that comes along with this season, but but I begin to wonder lately if the problem isn't too much gift-giving in the light of Jesus, but too little. (laughs) Let's not lose sight of the fact that Jesus is a gift. He's a gift to Mary and Joseph, a gift to his people he's come to save. And he is so great a gift that whatever it may cost us to receive him becomes like nothing compared to the greatness of the gift. So accept the gift. Receive what God has so generously given. Let go of the lesser things that we're clinging to and receive him and let every heart prepare him room. And you know what you discover when you receive Jesus? You discover something amazing. You find out that what you gave up, you never really had in the first place. Receiving Jesus involves letting go of what you never had in order to get that which you would never have hoped to get otherwise. When you receive Jesus, you discover, in fact, that you never really had a great reputation. Right? I mean, I can dress up and come to church, but talk to my family, right? They've seen that at best, you know, I'm the one-eyed king in the kingdom of the blind, right? We discover that we never had a great reputation. We actually discover, too, that we never really ruled our own lives. We find out that we were slaves to sin, that we were led around by the nose, by every passion and appetite and whim and fleeting ambition, And we find out, in fact, that we never possessed a real righteousness. We never did. But we find out that we were dead in our sins and trespasses. You see, by His grace, God takes the initiative to give us everything, even Himself. And with Him comes sonship and freedom in knowing His gracious rule and the very righteousness of Christ, which can never be taken away. And we find out that Jesus never requires that which he is not willingly and abundantly able to provide for us and himself. And he gives to us by giving of himself that we would get grace. Think about Jesus. He gave up reputation by coming into the world without beauty that we should admire him. Lowly, dogged with scandal that he might have us and that we might have him. 
He gave up rule, leaving his father's throne above, entering history, coming with utter vulnerability in the incarnation, not counting equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptying himself, taking the form of a servant that we might know him and have abundant life in him. He not only kindly subjects us by grace under his rule and reign, but he assures his little flock that it's the Father's good pleasure to give us the kingdom, his kingdom. He won't even call us subjects, but he's determined that we know that in him we're brothers and sisters, sons and daughters, children of the king. Scripture says that for our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God with us, God for us, has come so that we would not merely know about him, but so that we might fully have him, and so that he would fully have us, that we would know life and life abundant. Let's pray. Lord, I'm, I'm grateful for this season, and I love that we celebrate it by giving each other gifts. And Lord, I love that your word points us to Jesus who was given to us as a gift. And we thank you that you're, by your grace you've come and that you have uh, come as you've come with a view not only to our redemption, but with a view toward relationship. So Lord, I pray that as we come to this table, that we would see this very much as a family table. There's perhaps no more intimate place in the home than sitting around the table and sharing a meal and fellowshipping with one another. And Lord Jesus, you put on such glorious display your humility and your majesty in this table, which you've given to your people. So Lord, thank you that you have given yourself and that you indeed are the one gift that keeps on giving and you do it here. So, Lord, even as we're hungry and thirsty, even as we kind of slog through this season of Advent, wishing that it could be more than what it feels like it is, Lord, help us to fix our eyes on you, to delight in our Savior, to delight in this table, and to come full of faith and hungry and thirsty that we would eat and drink unto salvation, looking forward to the day when we will be with you in the flesh, seated around your table, dining on the richest of fare where sin will be no more and where we will be in that place of the fullest enjoyment of having God with us. So, Lord, attend to us as we come to this table, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.